Um, she got my mail already. Whoa. Wow. I mailed that last week. I mailed her a bag of candy corn. Because apparently you can't get that in France. Really? I was like, well, I can mail you some wax and corn syrup. In corn shape. The true American fruit. Not even in corn shape. It's like a little cone. Not kernels. Yeah, I'm not as big a fan of those pumpkin ones. Yeah, because the pumpkin ones are too much of that ingredients. They're too yeah, thick. Yeah, they're too fat. The proportions yeah, thrown it's off. Too, it's too orange. You need yeah. the illusion of other flavors. I've never tasted like a different flavor. I mean, I've had those chocolate ones. I but mean, they all there isn't the a flavor. Yeah, they all taste the same. I just mean like you need those colors to like give you a sense that like. These are going to be different flavors. Different parts of this corn. Uh-huh. are going to be a different flavor. But yeah, the chocolate ones are no different. Although apparently they're like caramel yeah. apple ones. And I was kind of like, huh. That would be interesting. I'm sure they suck too. But yeah. Yeah, I still want to eat them. I bought a pack for my sister. And then I kept like walking past, you know, like the big bin at Giant. That has like just bags and bags of them. I'm thinking like, man, I want that. Halloween candy. I can't have this in my house. I can't have it in my house. It'll just, I'll eat it all night. And then I don't buy it and I still end up eating all night anyway. I still end up eating like a meal at (laughs) 1am. That's really fucked up. And that's why this is the Halloween episode. What? It's really fucked up. I love candy. Oh. I love candy so much. Yeah. Heavy. Bored. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy. Bored. episode of heavy board i'm andrew Wistat. i'm sophie wiener and today we're doing the classic novel dracula by D- bram stoker bram stoker i just call him bram good old bram oh yeah listeners will know what this is dracula i'm sure you've heard of it all this good stuff uh, we have the same version, I believe. We both have Wordsworth Classics. Uh, yeah, mine, I guess, is newer, maybe. We Because we both have uh, the Wordsworth Classics, but mine has a different picture on the cover, I think. Yeah. Was yours have the castle? Yeah. Yeah, you have the Dracula castle. I just have an upside-down bat. Um, I wonder if our pages are the same... Don't know. Uh, for this one, originally, um, you know, the novel came out in uh, 1897 originally, and then um, 
the Wordsworth editions that we have, so we've talked about this before, listeners, the Wordsworth editions are nice, cheap little paperbacks you can get for not much money at all, and they print a lot of the classics, so you can own a copy of this and read through it. Worth buying. But it looks like they published like the first Wordsworth editions of Dracula in 93, and then like the notes and introductions kind of added over the year. But over the year 2000, it said, was the last time they added an introduction. At least on the title page. I read through some of the introduction, and listeners know that introductions bore the shit out of me because they're usually written by academics and they're boring as shit with like bibliographies. So, like, academics don't know how to write introductions to books. They just write like research papers and then call it an introduction to books. It's kind of what this one is, although there are some interesting parts to it. Like, I learned some stuff about like Stoker's career, all that good stuff. You can, uh, who, who did your introduction? Is it the same person? I have David Rogers. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yep. So we have a nice little introduction that, you know, always goes into too much detail about the writer of the book and then the kind of, like, theories about it. Like, this one was a straight-up fucking summary, dude. Like, where they just straight-up did summaries of, like, well, there was, like, a queer theory thought of this in, uh, you know, the 80s and all that. Like, it was literally yeah, a summary at it. of the last hundred years of Dracula. But yeah, classic, and we're doing this one for Halloween, I figure. Why not? Page numbers are pretty much going to be the same. Hopefully, we'll see. But there's that, the additions. All right, fuck, housekeeping. Keep forgetting. Uh, those that don't know, we are looking for workshop horror stories. If you have a workshop horror story you want to share with us, Please send that to heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. We want to get that started. It'll be a lot of fun. We also have a subscription plan. Uh, for just a few dollars a month, you can subscribe to this podcast at patreon.com slash heavyboard. We oversee full, uncensored, uncut episodes for subscribers only, including bonus episodes. Sophie and I just did a listener Q&A, and you only get access to that if you're a subscriber. So if you don't want to miss that, check that out, patreon.com slash heavyboard. If you can't afford that, don't want to do that, there are other ways to support us. You can... Uh, like, subscribe, share on our YouTube channels, whatever podcast platform you get your podcasts on. You can leave us a five-star review on Apple or any other, any, other, any other platform that allows you to review. That helps us out. Give us a like. Give us a share. Give us a subscribe. That helps us out. doesn't cost you anything. If you like this, please support it. I think that's it. That's it for housekeeping. I'm also doing a little little treat for listeners where I'm going to go through a couple different versions of uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula here, movie versions, and that'll be available for uh, subscribers only. So if you want to get that, you should subscribe. Patreon.com slash heavyboard. And then send us those workshop horror stories. Heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. All right, and that's housekeeping. So we went over the type of books, the style, the press, all that bullshit. Um... Initial thoughts. What do we think? I liked it for like 60 pages. <laughs> um, you know me. I love any kind of like horror story, ghost stories, all that stuff. Um, you know, oh, glitter yeah. vampires, all the shit. Love it all. Yeah, um, sparkling vampires. Twilight. Listen to our Twilight episodes, listeners. <laughs> 
yeah, I really I was enjoying those for like the first several chapters. And you know, we were talking about it, it kind of fell off for me in the middle. And it kind of it just like kind of plateaued for me about halfway through and just sort of stayed there. Um, pretty much all the way up until the end for me. Um, I really liked the style in which it was written. I really liked that, you know, I mean, it's sort of like, I almost want to describe it. A, like, I mean, it's letters, right? But it almost plays out similar to like found footage, right? At least if you're going by, I guess, the note at the beginning, which is like, you know, referring to all the documents Right. Oh, yeah. Um, so we're just we're reading all of the journals and letters and like um, telegrams that tell the story of several different characters. And I thought that was cool. I mean, that, you know, that's one of those things where it can be really good or it can be kind of shitty because you're really limited in your character perspective. Um, but yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I enjoyed this book. I read it in about four days. Um, it kind of flew for me. As Sophie mentioned, it follows a lot of that kind of, kind of what you would say the Victorian style ghost story, right? It's very similar to Frankenstein, all that good stuff. Uh, <clears throat> I haven't read Jekyll and Hyde, but we should put that on the list. I haven't read um, um, Jekyll and Hyde. I haven't read Frankenstein either. You never had to read Frankenstein? Never had to read Frankenstein. Damn, dude. In undergrad, I think I was assigned Frankenstein like three different times in like three different classes. Ugh. Yeah. But anyway, if you're familiar with any of that, like Sophie and I like ghost stories. We've talked about ghost stories before and kind of I'll always say, you know, the best horror ideas and ghost stories came out of the end of the, the Victorian era right there. If you talk of all the big movie like monsters that we kind of talk about now, and yeah, there's like existence of some monsters, like the vampire lore existed long before the Victorian era, werewolf lore, all that kind of stuff. But like the stories around it that are iconic that we go back to all the time, the ghost stories, the kind of even Agatha Christie style, like murder mystery drawing rooms, right? That all stems from this era where we were having the kind of first moments of the industrial revolution and, you know, We've talked about this when we talked about other writers, the breaking up of villages, right? More industrious. The cities are growing larger. Um, we're developing a somewhat of a middle class with the uh, in Industrial Revolution and all that kind of stuff. And the rich people were just sitting around in these drawing room parlors, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody knows the story how Frankenstein got written and all that kind of stuff, right? It was like a competition. They were sitting around. It was storming. There was nothing to do but sit by the fire and see who could tell the best ghost stories, right? So they would just tell these stories, uh, seances, right? This became very big during the Victorian era and then kind of moved into the modernist era too, right? Like um, Yates famously did seances with his wife and shit. Uh, very insane shit, like very insane shit. Um, anybody interested in Yates? Uh, like Yates if you look was at really his later stuff. Occult, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like kind of towards the end of his life, he went pretty crazy with it, dude. Like he and his wife would literally like do these seances and he would just like rap on the table, do sound effects there with a little rap on the table. And then he would just write these reams of verse unedited and like publish them and claim that they were like the words of God and like the spirits and shit, you know? Good Lord. So insane shit. But like 
there's also like that's ripe with stories right <laughs> like that's ripe with stories uh good stories and this is what dracula follows that same for formula dracula was kind of in like the tail end there i would say the biggest innovation we have in the 20th century that even remotely comes close to what they did in the victorian era is the zombie innovation when we started talking about zombies and that happened around early 20th century right the kind of like the night of the living dead and all these kinds of things like oh people being raised up from the dead but before then like the ghosts what was the dracula, first zombie literature I don't know. I mean, I guess you could argue some rising from the dead type thing. Like, shit, we could go, if you really want to argue with it, we go, like, Bible stories or whatever. People rising from the dead and well, walking around but being different. I don't know. But uh, actually calling them zombies and, like, referring to them as, like, a specific thing, particularly, like, the viral outbreak storyline that goes with all the zombie lore was kind of an early 20th century invention off the tail end of these Victorian inventions where they were, like, Dracula taking, like, like I said, the vampire lore existed like through centuries before this, right? Like there was always like a ghost story from medieval times, etc., of like this bloodsucker that can transform into vats. But Dracula by Bram Stoker, it gave him a name. So it gave the vampire a name. And now we have like Dracula. Everybody refers to like a vampire as like a Dracula setting. So this pretty much set the tone for all horror going forward, like in the 20th century, etc. And that's not my argument. I mean, you could find that anywhere in scholarship, and I just tend to agree with it. <coughs> I mean, what do you think? I mean, yeah, I think, well, I don't know. Is that something really to argue? Like, I just argue that, like, the ghost stories just, peaked, and, like, ghost stories peaked, and then they kind I of... I mean, yeah, I think all of the biggest examples we have of famous ghost stories or famous monster stories come from that time. Right, that's what I mean. It, like, right. peaked. Yeah, and, like, Dracula was, like, the tail end of that. And I'd, I'd been... I've Ghost stories have always been, like, a little kind of, you know, um, sweet spot for me where, like, I always appreciate a little ghost, a little supernatural. So I like that that was entering into, like, the mainstream literary scene at the time, all that good stuff. But, yeah, I enjoyed it. See if you did not... Uh, it's 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 set up the same way as like Frankenstein. That's the reason I brought it up is because Frankenstein has a lot of found letters, right? Letters back and forth from like the doctor, um, and then like the actual journal of Frankenstein himself when he learns to read and write and play music and all that kind of shit, right? So uh, we we plan to do Frankenstein eventually on this too. But again, I know that's one that if you're into books, you've been forced to read probably like fifty times by the time you leave college. So. Um, you know, listeners will let us know if you really don't want us to do that or not. But we do plan on doing it eventually, maybe next Halloween or some other ghost, uh, ghost related, uh, fucking event, monsters, horror, all that good stuff. And I've been watching a lot of horror movies. I know Sophie has too. We've been like, we were just talking about it the other day. Tis the season for horror. Tis the season for fucking Dracula. Uh, all right. Where do you want to start with this? I mean, with the only part that I enjoyed, you know? Yeah, beginning. so the Harker, Harker in the castle. Yeah, Jonathan Harker. Yeah, um, and I noticed that, like, first, when it, when it starts to get that kind of... I've always said this, and we talked about it a little bit so far as we were reading through this this last week, Sophie and I, uh, you know, in text and stuff. Like, this is kind of pure pulp, 
like I think that's why I liked it so much. Like the mystery is established kind of right away with Harker going to this strange castle in this strange land. He has to leave from London. And then all of a sudden, when he says he's going to Dracula's castle, all the locals are always kind of like they're all like, oh, like don't don't go there you know kind of thing and like there's all this kind of mystery around it the part i underlined is on page five bottom of the page uh when he gets his like letter to welcome him from dracula but at the uh, at the bottom there he says when i asked him if he knew count dracula and could tell me anything of his castle both he and his wife crossed themselves and saying that they knew nothing at all simply refused to speak further so you get a lot of that and it just kind of sets this kind of <gasps> mystery like okay what something's up with this and it doesn't come outright and say he's a vampire but it uses kind of like the reader's knowledge preconceived knowledge of what vampires do garlic blood sucking mirrors all this kind of thing and they kind of slowly layer that in or stoker kind of slowly starts to be like oh this something's wrong about this guy yeah, we get all of that with him approaching the castle. He's, like, getting on a train. All of these people are flashing crosses at him. They're crossing themselves. They're, like, staring at him like he's a freak. But only um, when they learn that he's going to Dracula's castle as, like, yeah. a, a solicitor, they call it in here, which I guess is, like, kind of a lawyer at the time. Yeah. Where you would, like, do stuff for a client, like, get the legal paperwork and deeds for houses and purchases and, and things like that shipping yeah. arrangements all that kind of stuff um but we d before we move on i just wanted to yeah this uh the idea of the letters so the format of the letters or journals that tell the story i would say very victorian very victorian ghost style frankenstein etc what do we think about that what does it do we could talk format wise just straight up story wise entertainment wise what do you think I mean, it's fun because they have different voices, right? I think right, yeah. um, it lets you, I guess in some places it does like kind of let you backtrack to see things from a different perspective, right? So you'll hear about something happening from one character and then we will switch to the voice of another character and they'll recount it as it actually happened. So that's always fun. Um, it also prevents you from getting stuck too much in one character, which I feel like uh, <laughs> there are some characters that I would be like, oh, I am fucking sick of this. I got to admit, the, the uh, two main female characters at first, I was like, oh, my <sighs> fucking God. Oh, my fucking God. How much longer can this continue? Um because you can be in one voice for a really long time. Um, but I do think it keeps it fun. It keeps it maybe... Um, I don't know if it re really truly adds to the suspense. I'm sure that, you know, in some way, I'm sure it does. <laughs> but I think, you know, it it keeps certain things maybe withheld in creative ways yeah there's a suspense back and forth yeah the suspense is between you get half the story from this one person and you get the other half from another person uh so it does yeah. add that element of suspense from chapter to chapter type thing 
uh, which yeah, well, they're, and fine within technique. any one chapter, you can switch between like three different people, or you might switch not at all. Like the first, you know, however many chapters were almost entirely Jonathan Harker. There might have been a little bit. Um, I mean, most of yeah, most of the beginning is Jonathan Harker. Yeah. First couple uh, of chapters are all jonathan harker's journal and then we start getting mina and uh lucy's correspondence yeah yeah and that's where it starts to fall off for me so not even half i mean it's like not barely just i would say uh around page oh god you know where it does start to get fun for me again when renfield comes into it and we get uh with swords diary yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there was uh, there's this one thing I wanted to laugh at real quick. Hold up, before we move on there, because move through the pace. When he's talking about like when he first gets into the to the castle and, and Dracula is like is like uh, you will need <laughs> you will need after your journey to refresh yourself by making your toilet. I trust you will find all your wish, all of all, and then eventually like. Harker's just like, uh, I discovered that I was half famished with hunger, so making a hasty toilet, I went into the other room. <laughs> I just said, making a hasty toilet. Making a hasty toilet. <laughs> Dump and freshen up. A hasty toilet. I guess back then that could mean anything from washing yeah. your hands and face to taking a dump in the pot, uh, <laughs> that like the chamber yeah. pot or whatever. I think uh, so. Well, I think my favorite part in these first several chapters is so, like, you know, Jonathan Harker is, like, (laughs) quickly realizing that he is somewhere that maybe he doesn't want to be, and it's really creepy. Um, We learn that Dracula has hairy hands, by the way. The palms of his (laughs) hands are hairy. Um, I thought that was a fun tidbit, because that's just gross. Uh, and also that, like, <laughs> when he sees Dracula leave the castle, he was like, I saw him climbing out the window like a lizard. And it was just such a funny image. Like, it, I understand that it's, like, supposed to be scary, but, you know, every time he kept saying that he saw Dracula leave like a fucking lizard, I couldn't help but laugh a little bit. Uh. Yeah, and there is a point, it's right in chapter 2, page 24, where I marked it, where he, he straight up says he feels like a prisoner. At the very end of, the, of chapter 2, the castle is a veritable prison, and I am a prisoner. <clears throat> and that's how the chapter 2 ends. Yeah. And he kind of realizes that he's not allowed to leave, right? The doors are locked. He can't get in. You can't, and it's like mysterious, right? Like the mystery is right up fully there. Yeah. And then he starts. Well, and he has seeing... to sleep in his bedroom. He's forbidden to sleep anywhere else. But he's like, yeah. fuck that. And he goes to like sleep in the library. And then he gets approached by like three sexy vampire ladies. Yeah, let's talk about lamp- the sexy you know, vampires. must be sexy. They must oh, be yeah. sexy except for Dracula, okay. who is entirely unsexy let's talk about that let's talk about the the, not just like the sexiness of those three women that kind of like are trying to seduce him uh which i found compelling i think that was in chapter three around page 34 so but um just this idea of like sexiness and like horror like the correlation the women right now just the women at least in this book it's just the women yeah the men are oh. like i mean dracula is not described as like a sex bomb he is like 
a haggard old man, basically. I mean, they don't call him haggard. They just describe him as like, you know, an old, really super creepy looking man with like a, you know, pointed beard and mustache. And you don't get the sense that he was like ever very attractive. Um, So I found I found that kind of funny because there's so much emphasis on like the hotness of the vampire even here like even but just with the women just the women yeah that uh i'm gonna go into this in uh our subscribers only episode when i talk about some of the movie adaptations of this novel whereas like there was a point where like they did start to make the male vampire or dracula character more sexy but that came later like it's not so much in the novel Although you could argue he collects women, right? Like he collects yeah, these well, beautiful uh, there young is women. That part, there is a part later in the book where we learn that he is appearing younger than he once was. Right, as he drinks blood, right. etc. Um, so, you know, it's not... It's just, it's an idea left to be explored. But like all the women are hot. And... At this time, right, like the Victorian era was a very sexually repressive area, at least in terms of like the prim and proper stuff that they would publish, right? Obviously, people were still having sex and all that kind of stuff, but like there was. Yes, there's a lot of. She looked at me very appealingly. Right. Very. uh, There was a lot of shame associated with it, those that know the history of that era, right? A lot of pearl clutching, a lot of fainting on couches. But like, I am fascinated by this question. I want to explore it a little bit, like the correlation between sex and horror. And even, like, sex and gore to a certain extent. There's not really well, gore in this like, novel. there's some, like, taboo but... there, right? Like, that's what, like, the right. joining of those two things. I feel like there's something taboo about it that it plays into. I don't know. What do you think? Um, yeah, I think that there is a, a strong correlation between, well, because sex is such, like, a human experience such a thing that we i mean you know you go back in religions we treated it as sacred there were celebrations right you could talk about roman orgies all that there was this tied in thing and then like for some reason it's tied into horror too i i i I, i'm fascinated by why you know the kind of like this hideous thing even like gore that's hard to look at or something, you know, like you cringe on when you're watching a movie or something. And then like, but like the person's like naked and like, there's like some girl with like huge fake breasts, like naked on the screen. And then like, they're like cutting her toe off or something. And you're like, Oh, it's hard to look at. Like, but then like, it's, there's also like, it's like kind of, there's not that it's sexy. Yeah. Not that it's like, Oh, you know, appealing, but it is like, there's something that carries the horror. And I was thinking this, you know, biting, just the act of biting another person like right something little kids do but when you do it as an adult why do you why do you bite people i mean it's a sex thing right like it's it's like and then like the biting of the neck right like this area like the kind of it's very vulnerable sensitive all that kind of stuff the vulnerability that mixes in with sexual desires the kind of illogical things that happen i guess that just ties into horror i mean i don't know i'm just attempting to kind of answer this thing that it just keep it kept recurring especially as i was watching some of the movie adaptations like yeah well and it's also they like make I think playing into sexy. the idea of like evil being tempting right, right. okay yeah i like that or some of that, like that idea yeah hell yeah that's that's definitely there 
Definitely there. Listeners can let us know what they think. The correlation between sex and horror. Sex. Uh, it, it, it is. I, I think this all the time, too. I think about music, right? Sex and music. It can also just be sensational. I mean, I, yeah. I don't think that's what it's doing here. I think, like, you know, if we were to talk about something like American Horror Story, I think it would be somewhere in between. It's, like, unsettling and it's sensational. Yeah, there's like a tantalizing aspect. Like it's like tantalizing you in a way that's uncomfortable. I don't know. Maybe that's it. But yeah, something to think about. And I think that might come back up every time we do a horror thing because I, for some reason, over the last couple of weeks, I just can't stop seeing it. I've been watching a lot of horror movies and like, you know, getting in the spirit of the season. And there's just this weird sexual element that like is weaved in between all of horror and like the tropes of horror yeah. and yeah. all I can see now is fucking <laughs> Jack Torrance just rubbing his wife's nipples uh, immediately after they fight yeah. little tit jiggling dude uh, yeah I mean yeah and I'm all for it right like I'm all for it <laughs> It's just, it's an interesting thing. I'm sure there's there's endless scholarship written about this crap, but yeah. And I also thought it was interesting that like they use doctors to kind of show how baffling a lot of the cases are, particularly when we get into like Lucy's um, journals and diaries and Mina's letters back and forth to her. Oh God, Lucy's are the worst. Lucy's well, just are like, actually the fucking worst. And that, and like having a doctor be baffled by something that's happening, like what does that add, you know? Well, I mean, I think we're taking like someone that we're supposed to trust, right? Supposed to be knowledgeable, a healer. Knowledgeable right? and trustworthy. To, yeah. Supposed so to solve. So if they're stumped, we should all be scared, right? Right, yeah. Like the doctor doesn't know what's going yeah. on. Um, but the then we do have one doctor who does and it seem to know what's going on where he suspects yeah. where we get yeah what do we think of van helsing as van helsing starts to come in here as we learn more and more yeah i think he knows kind of immediately and he's just not willing to put all of his eggs in that basket at from the jump like he doesn't want to freak them out so he doesn't say this is what I suspect but he sort of unveils it slowly that and because they uh, would put think he was crazy right they put him in a madhouse if he was this well respected professor of medicine that is uh, talking about bloodsuckers and like fantasy yeah. stuff people are going to laugh at him right he's going to lose his titles his position his respect uh, so he has to like carefully break it to sword and all that and but I viewed it, I wrote down in my notes here that like when we get to that point where we get introduced to Van Helsing and Mina and Lucy, it's almost like Mina and Van Helsing are playing like the role of a detective in like a pulp style. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Mina, Van Helsing and Seward, all three of them are like the detectives and maybe, you know, even Jonathan Harker later kind of becomes a sidekick also when uh, Quincy P. Morris or what the fuck ever his name is. Um, 
Yeah, they, they're all solving it together, but it's really like Van Helsing is sort of leading the charge, and then there's Mina, who's sort of by his side, and um, yeah, I guess those are the two main ones, and Seward is kind of helping them along. And Seward's the skeptical one because he's a doctor of mental health, right? He runs a sanitarium where we get Renfield and all that. So he's like the one that's like, well, there's a, everybody has delusions, you know, like there are delusions that we can diagnose and help treat. But so he like has to like part of the reason Van Helsing has to be so delicate is because Seward, as we learn, as his former student would be skeptical of him saying, oh, there's a blood sucking vampire that can morph into bats and wolves and control and hypnotize people and lure them out of their 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 homes their bedrooms all that kind of thing <clears throat> i say that too is like that's kind of sexual right like of like the fact that dracula can lure lucy who's supposed to be this gorgeous young woman in her nightgown right because it's victorian era so in her like yeah nighty, well i mean it's also yeah it's a guy who like, sneaks into your room at night <laughs> while right. you're sleeping and bites your neck like and bites your neck and you let him kind of thing like yeah like so there is this level of like yeah sexual taboo maybe is the best way to put it like sophie said that kind of ups the ante ups the escalation kind of stuff the tension the thriller aspect the pulp discovery detective like thing that i that i got out of this like that made me keep kind of propelling through this this book isn't terribly long this book's like 300 pages right so it's kind of an average length novel it's not like you know 500 600 800 page novel it's pretty standard and it, it there there are parts there like you said when like lucy and mina get introduced with their letters back and forth the pace does slow down a little bit Ugh, like it slows down because so much we just had it harker slows down so yeah. much it's so much of the book it goes on for so fucking long okay you say your bit now yeah well, like, because we get Harker's discovery, and he discovers he's a prisoner, and then he makes his fucking escape, right, eventually, and uh, then we get introduced to Mina and Lucy, who we learn, we don't know yet when they first get introduced, but we learn oh, through their Lucy's letters. Oh, just so in love. Yeah. And it's all that. that. That's, uh, like, so much of their letters. It's, I'm so in love. Right, that they're tied into these, to Harker and some of these other uh, people that come up. But, yeah, it does throw the pace off a little bit when the women uh, come in and start talking about how they want to be proposed to and how to, oh, don't you think he's a fine young man? Would you want to marry him? Blah, blah, blah. Like their letters back and forth. Does throw off the pace some until we get to Sword and his kind of crazy Renfield patient that is... Uh... It's also deeply uninteresting. <laughs> Yeah, we can skip over a lot of that. But yeah, lots of like, and then when we find out that like Lucy's having issues and like she, we find out that she's a vampire. Yeah, finally, like, like Lucy's falling ill, right? Lucy is, uh, so I feel like it all kind of starts coming to a head around, what is it, like chapter 12? Um yeah, around chapter 12 and then chapter 14 is where we find out that she's straight up a vampire. Like, they find her, like, luring those kids in the graveyard and shit. The blue fur lady. Um, the the white lady in the graveyard that's, like, luring children or whatever. Um, yeah, so basically what happens is we learn that Lucy's falling ill. 
we know that her mom is also dying um not because of any kind of vampire shit but just because she's old uh and sick and she's dying heart condition Um, yeah and so everyone's being very careful to not shock her because my god we could shock her to death um but as Lucy becomes sick, you know, no one can figure it out. So who is it? Is it uh, her husband-to-be that calls on Dr. Seward? Or is it the other doctor that's, like, tending to her? I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember either, but I just Seward is the one who calls Van Helsing because he can't figure it out. And then that's when Van Helsing is like, oh, she's uh, a severe lack of blood. That's why she's, like, dizzy and not being able to stand yeah, and can she's only super sleep pale she can only sleep yeah. yeah so they have to do these blood transfusions and that's that's always good stuff where they're doing these fucking blood transfusions from one person's arm to the other i guess my fucking can you know my modern contemporary brain is always like how could they do that we don't even know what blood type it is like <laughs> i could kill her like yeah. <laughs> that's what i was like but thinking. they're all just like, switching off yeah like three men <laughs> But uh, I guess that in blood types were not a thing yet. Um, but yeah, I thought that was a good escalation. Having Lucy become kind of like a vampire and then have her die. God, but it takes so fucking long, dude. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we have all that happen. Finally, Lucy uh, gets sick. We learn, uh, like we get all these hints, you know, we hear like, a bat tapping at her window. We get a lot of these allusions to like, oh, well, don't let her sleep with the window open. Uh, Van Helsing comes and puts, you know, what he calls flowers around her neck, but it's really garlic. Garlic flowers. Yeah. Right. The, the flowers that grow out of the ground where the garlic grows underneath the ground, right? Um, like onions. That the potatoes, all those types of like things that grow in the ground, but yeah, and and I thought it was a good escalation. It was a good escalation of the tension. It keeps the mystery going to the point where okay, we're pretty much aware that this is a vampire, and then Lucy dies, and they have to do all this elaborate shit to kill her, right? Because she's a yeah. Fucking and keep in mind, vampire. we are so far into the book. We're like, I mean, what chapter twelve is like about halfway through the book, and I don't know if at this point we've even used the word vampire. No, they don't use the word vampire until very late in the book. I marked chapter 14, page 161, is where I, uh, when they find out that, uh, yeah, very end of chapter uh, 14, where, uh, in God's name, Professor Van Helsing, what do you mean, I cried. He threw himself with a despairing gesture into a chair and placed his elbows on the table, covering his face with his hands as he spoke. They were made by Miss Lucy. In terms of they're like the kids, right? They find these kids that are, have these marks in their neck and they're like dead or their blood is gone and it's all, they figure out it was Lucy. But this aspect of the letters, this gets back to it too, with this kind of like the urgent messages and letters that they're like, oh, an urgent telegram. That's like the only way you could communicate, right? And then there's the aspect where yeah. they, the Stoker clarifies that they aren't read. So this is a letter that nobody's seen. Yeah. Or they're the delivered reader, late. Right, so they don't right. get them in time. Yeah. And this adds a ticking clock element, right? So those of our craft listeners, they care about the craft of writing, and this would be a fiction element, right? 
adding and that's that intermittent. Clock. It's not just letters either, right? It's also a diary. A lot of it is just diary entries. Yeah. But the letters specifically, like the urgent messages that are like, you have to know this. And of course, they don't get to S.W.O.R.D. in time or they don't get to Van Helsing in time. And then, of course, it's too late for Lucy and all this kind of stuff. Something goes wrong in the plan. And that adds, again, the suspense, thriller, pulp element to it. But yeah, Uh, hold on. I got to pee real quick. And then I want to talk about Lucy and why all the men are obsessed with her. Again, going back to that like sexual horror shit. (laughs) Had to make a hasty toilet. (laughs) <laughs> a, hasty a hasty one toilet. or a hasty two a hasty one hasty yellow yeah so what's up with these men and lucy lucy and mina after lucy's dead yeah all these so men protecting the these these yeah these vulnerable young vaginas they're just being protected yeah. by these these men who uh, claim to play that These literally men with pledge their man brains. Yeah, there's a lot of that. They're like where they're like, Mina, you have a male's, you have a man's brain. I swear, Mina. Uh, <laughs> what the fuck was I gonna say? The uh, yeah, like these like, and then not just that, they like they pledge their life to it. Like these men are willing to die. Oh, not yeah. just for Mina and Lucy, but they say to like fight the evil, right? But like. I think like that's an element too, right? Not so much like the damsel in distress type thing, but like that is a horror element. Like most horror movies have a vulnerable young woman at the center somewhere. Usually most horror stories, tropes, weird kind of, I guess maybe it's like yeah. a romantic thing, like the love element to justify character actions. But I thought yeah, tying I all the know. men to Lucy, yeah. Interesting choice. What do we think? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It, like, it's all always weird to me. Uh, I mean, it's hard. Like, it's just like, it seems like Seward and Van Helsing in particular. It's just them, right? Because, like, the other two men love their loved ones, right? Jonathan, Harker loves mina and arthur whose name changes at some point and he becomes lord godalming or whatever right um uh but he loves lucy and like no one else right they each have their significant other but these other two men isn't it quincy morris who is engaged to lucy Quincy no Quincy is isn't he one of the people that tries to become engaged to Lucy but oh but is Arthur is the one that wins and so is Seward Seward is also in love with Lucy right that's Um, what I mean dude everybody's in love with yeah okay so yeah everyone's in love with Lucy and that's sort of I kind of forgot about that yeah yeah. everyone's fucking in love with Lucy she writes to Mina and she's like oh I was proposed to three times this week Right, um, and she and they're giving her blood, so they're like putting themselves inside of her type thing. Like there's there's just yeah. the stress of that it's, symbolic. Oh yeah, uh, and the husband or well, the husband to be doesn't know <laughs> either that the other two men had to step in for him. Had to put their put their 
things inside of her. Put their uh, yeah. They had to get in there. Put some some blood. Make it wet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Open a hole and uh, insert a needle. Yeah. So it's very. It's all very sexy. Very. Uh, very fun. And it's there while she's laying I mean, there, unable to yeah. respond. <laughs> and they keep you know. lots of kissing of the head, lots of kissing and of like the sweaty forehead and and things like that. And I yeah, don't know. but then I it's really kept... fun when they describe how gross she is when she sleeps. Yeah, <laughs> like her lips just keep peeling back to reveal her teeth. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah. oh, open mouth sleeper. But yeah, I don't know. I guess like that's just to make us feel like Lucy is something special. Yeah. That all of these men love her, but it really doesn't do anything except say, oh, she's like a sweet, beautiful woman. It brings like, all of we, these people. We know very little about Lucy's personality except that she is excited to get married. Yeah. But in a story structure element, Lucy is the catalyst to bring Van Helsing, Sword, Quincy, Arthur, uh, Harker, Mina, all of them. She's the link that like gets all of them to come together. And that's where I kind of got this like vibe as the story progresses and they realize they have to do something. It's almost like I said chapter 18, page 196-ish. Let me flip to there. Where, like, we oh. kind of learn. <laughs> the, my first note for chapter 18 is, she looked so appealing and so pretty. I could not refuse her. <sighs> exactly. Let me find what page that is. I was also listening to the audiobook off and on, so I don't always have the uh, page marked. I will say the uh, Audible audiobook is pretty good. It's got, like, <laughs> I think Alan Cumming reads dr seward and like tim curry is maybe dracula and like harker the beginning it's fun yeah but what i got in the chapter 18 is like this is after the death this is after where they realize that they're gonna have to like be all together because they're fighting this undead guy who's super strong it's almost like this kind of gathering of the team that this gathering of like the marvel superheroes to fight a great evil right like this kind of everybody has to come and do their part they have their special skills even though i guess arthur or the lord um what's his name is just his only superpower is being yeah is is being rich that's like his superpower or whatever that's what he brings to the team money for the expenses they need uh but i found that very compelling this kind of like getting the team together uh to fight this great evil is this one mina is talking to dr seward's patient who like you know eats pets basically is his thing he like eats animals right it's it's right when I think it's past that because I think it's it's right where um, Van Helsing is basically like look like we have a vampire here and kind of everybody is finally willing to admit that that's not a crazy thing to say, but they have to be careful because everybody else is gonna think they're crazy, and but we get yeah. this kind of moment after they've gathered everybody at Swords um, Hospital that like <clears throat> they need to like they all just kind of make 
like, agree that yeah, it's a vampire. Like, kind of everybody kind of sort of admits vampires are real. And I think this is where having a doctor and a professor and a lord and all these people like where it was a good choice to make this kind of believable because now we have a doctor like so if he's this kind of authority figure, these professor admitting and telling people that actually yes this is true that we researched this and this is what it is so it kind of adds to the believability but i mean at this point we're like 200 pages into a 300 page book about vampires so you kind of believe it anyway but i thought that was just a good way to do it yeah so we have our team Um, and right because everybody has to be persuaded and it would make sense right like if we're in a fantasy novel right like people have to be persuaded a fantasy story you have skeptical characters it's almost like a trope in like the the way it's laid out but i had a question here where i was like all right how much do ghosts slash horror stories right rely on kind of legend or lore i mean i think it depends on the story right you mean legend that they build into like that already exists yeah. before the story is written. I mean, yeah, like probably the folklore a stories. Bit. Yeah, but I think it almost... also depends. But yeah. yeah, I would say probably most horror comes from some, some fucking folklore. Yeah, and there's right. the folklore, especially at this time when everybody was getting educated, right? Like were, we know what folklore is, which is like it's kind of like myths, right? Stories, legends these things that we know that probably aren't true, but there's like this doubt of certainty in the reader about it. And then like, it's used to like the story's advantage. Like what I mean is like, you know, if people don't believe in ghosts or supernatural things, how does the horror story use that to, you know, kind of um, use that to like, kind of have like this fear or doubt to its advantage. So it kind of uses the disbelief, of what most people would say about ghosts or i.e. vampires and then like uses that to the advantage of the story to like that doubt of the reader and making them believe like you have to like make them believe by using these things that are in the back of their head we talked about this a little bit what episode was it was it the flynn episode where we just kind of got on the ghost subject for a little while i don't know that idea of like you know, if you don't believe in ghosts, but you're still afraid of ghosts, that Edith Wharton quote, where like, there's this doubt, right? That there's this, you're like, oh, ghosts aren't real, but then there's this possibility, like <laughs> maybe they are real, kind of thing, and that's like a trope. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a trope, but we learn immediately, right? Like that vampires are real. We learn it right, right away. Because we see it in John Harker's diary. So I don't think that we as the reader really have to feel any doubt. We just have to watch the characters come to terms with it. And that's the thing. We're grappling with it. It's like, how quickly will these characters come to terms with the fact that this is a real threat? Yeah, and what I'm getting at more in that question is, like, the doubt. So, like, if we say that ghosts aren't real, but there's this little bit of doubt in the back of our head, everybody that's so sure, right, there's this little ping of doubt. You mean us as a reader, like, is it supposed to make us fearful because even though we supposedly doubt, like, assuming that we as the reader doubt the existence of vampires or ghosts or whatever... Uh, like I mean I think it would have to 
Well, because I was, you know, horror isn't necessarily about being realistic either. I was going to say, is you know, is he trying to make it realistic enough that we're not going to doubt our own belief? But I don't think that's it either. Not realistic, but like that you have to believe the fantasy, right? So you have to earn the belief in but the I fantasy. But I also think there is less horror here than there is maybe thrill. Yeah, well, same thing like, with thrill, right? You have to you know, believe like what they're putting in front of you to make the thrill, like the drama, like, the tension think, that's leading up to it. Yeah, it feels more like a, a Scooby-Doo investigation than a, you know, it does one of like Edith Wharton's ghost stories, which I would say some of which are scarier. Yeah. I just, it's this inherent doubt that's being exploited, right? Like this kind of, there's this doubt inherent because we can't say for certain, although some people would argue we can say for certain, right? Because we have no proof. Right. Um, the default position is that we don't believe. We're expected right. not to be believers. Right. And then a novel or a good story or a good movie lets you suspend that disbelief, right? I guess they call it a willful suspension of disbelief, but like a great trope uses that little bit of doubt that maybe we're so certain that it's unreal. They exploit that little bit of doubt <clears throat> that's in the back of your mind to make you believe and follow through. And like Sophie said, they All use right. kind of thriller elements, ticking clock, right? Ticking clock. Well, again, again, like our, our, you know, some of our central characters, it's not like we just have like a priest who's leading the charge, right? We have a doctor. We have men of science. Well, that's why I brought that up, because I think that was where it was happening, right? We were reaching a point, and not just culturally, where science was revealing a lot of the mysteries of the world to us, right? Yeah, and they science refer to, advancing. like, you know, this age of enlightenment, right? Yes. They refer to the enlightenment. Um, and So, you know. they're trying to consciously subvert, like, our educated expectations, I think, is yeah. what, it, what it does. And I think you can use that to the advantage or disadvantage of any given story, but... Well, yeah, and we're and they're presented as like educated people too. Like even Mina, you know, she like is like I'm keeping a diary. She's like very investigative. She um, does a lot of problem solving for the group. Uh, yeah, she's almost like a secretary. Of course, it's right? when yeah, and it's when she's with she goes to see Seward's patient because Seward. He, they're all together and Seward gets called back to the hospital because uh, something's up with his patient and everyone else is like, we want to come too. So now they've like solidified as a group and he's like, oh, okay. Uh, Mina comes in. She wants to talk to Renfield, Seward's patient. And Renfield lets us know that clearly Mina's a bit pale and perhaps is not doing so great. And that's when they all look at each other and they're like, oh, shit. Um, so they discover that Mina, too, is under the influence of a vampire. Yeah, and then Mina takes on the role of, like, damsel in distress. Um, but, yeah, that... but she is and she isn't, right? She's, like, a more active... She isn't quite a Lucy here, right? Like, she is an active member of this like you know scooby-doo group um and she's oh, yeah. still doing a lot of the work to guide them 
And we can talk about that a little bit more. Uh, what did you want to? Yeah. There's so much God. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> she gets her baptism, right? Uh, so we find out that Mina has been getting her neck sucked on and um, they decide that, you know, we're all going to stay in the same place and someone's going to watch you. And um, yeah, Van Helsing does this like thing where he pulls out a crucifix and he presses it to her forehead and her forehead burns. And now she has a crucifix burn on her forehead. And this is after we learn that Mina is getting tempted through these kind of dreams that she describes in her diary, like these kind of dreams that we see. And it always fascinates me, like this kind of use of dreams. And I wanted to ask about like kind of why. Or like this trance state. Yeah. And the hypnotizing. Yeah. Like the hypnotizing and all that. Right. This goes with the seances. a lot of hypnosis. Yeah. So, yeah, Dr. or no, Van Helsing keeps hypnotizing her to try to read her mind or get her to, like, say what she has seen through this, like, she apparently has, like, this sort of Harry Potter-like access to Dracula. They're connected because right? she's drank his blood, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. It does have a very Harry Potter kind of Voldemort thing going on. Like, oh. Yeah. But you could say Harry Potter has a Dracula thing going on. Yeah, I mean, it's Considering true. it was like 100 years after Dracula was published. But yeah, like this idea of dreams. So why do dreams work so well in horror or fiction more generally? Oh, because we don't know what to make of them. Right? I mean, because there's so much left to interpretation because after so many years we still haven't figured out precisely what dreams are about because they're mysterious we hardly remember them except when we have nightmares right a lot of times they're nonsense right that they don't make sense yeah um you know there's a plenty of history of people saying that they've had like prophetic dreams right that and you could go yeah. back to even like ancient cultures right where they talked about like demons and things and like spirits that could come to you while you're asleep it's considered like a connection to the spiritual side right. of the world when you're kind of like in your unconscious state of sleeping uh i think that could be maybe that's why horror exploits it yeah so well. you're also vulnerable in sleep premonitions yeah like this kind of there's so many different ways to do it and uh, maybe that's why, because it's just such a useful tool in terms of like crafting a story oh, yeah. around, or well, adding that fun. element of mystery. It can be fun, yeah. right? Um, yeah. It's like a dream, like, you know. Adding dreams is like a whole fucking playground, because you can make anything happen. Um, and you know, you can, yeah, you can make anything happen. Yeah. Um, it's like a yeah good like Sophie said it's a good way to like play think of it as a playground and you can go the other way with this right so if you lean too hard into that well then you start going to the danger of, of the dream not making sense not just to the character but like not making sense to your reader either like there has to be like a tie up but yeah but I think it's used well here I don't think it's like especially exciting the way it's used 
I think it's just like a dev, like a plot device that allows them to get information they wouldn't otherwise have access to. Yeah. Right. And that keeps us like concerned for Mina. Um, Especially when we go into the realm of like being able to communicate with other characters in dreams. So if you're connected to Dracula and Mina, right? It's like a window into, I don't know, like another state of mind or something that can be used. Yeah. And, you know, they, um, well, and sleep is also, I mean, this isn't about dreams, right? But it's also the thing in the book that makes everyone vulnerable, including the vampires, right? It's where everyone is the most vulnerable. Um, so, like, when they kill Lucy, finally, after they realize that she's what they call, the, the, we get, you know, this little newspaper clipping that's like, oh, the bluefer lady, all these kids are disappearing. They're going to play with the bluefer lady, they say. And we find out that, you know, she's luring all of these kids. And, you know, they go and find her in her coffin while she's sleeping. And they kill her. Right. Um, drive a stake through the heart and cut off the head to ensure she's yeah, dead. Yeah, and fill her mouth with garlic. Oh, yeah. That severed yeah. head. Like you're roasting it. Um, yeah, we learned that also, like, in this world, vampires can do fucking everything. Right? Except, except travel in daylight, I guess. But they can, like fit through impossibly small spaces and are super strong. <coughs> you can know, turn like into all a this mist shit. almost. Yeah. yeah. Um, super strength. That's can turn into animals. One. They might not just turn into bats. They can turn into other things. Transfiguration. Yeah. <laughs> well, we get this scene at Porter. the zoo with some Porter. wolf, right? That's breaking out of the zoo. Harry Potter. Harry Potter. <laughs> Harry Potter can uh, transfigure. Oh, Potter. Mr. Potter. You cannot change into a toad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Harry Potter must go home. <laughs> Fucking Dobby, uh, dude. Yeah, dude. Fuck Davi. Uh, <laughs> what? Uh, I, I wanted to ask. There's a lot I'm of references for good brave men. Mina yes. it has a man's brain. There's a lot about men's brains. The male and female brain. How faith is our only anchor. That's <sighs> much later in the book. Um, but yeah, that that <laughs> keeps happening. Apparently, I thought in chapter 18. Alan Cumming was ridiculous <coughs> reading uh, Seward's journal. Uh, you should check it out, man. Uh, um, what was I going to say? The, the oaths. We talked about this a little bit. This kind of like oath making when we, we said that Lucy. You have my oath, sir. Right. I pledge my life to you 
blood oaths like this kind of it is a trope right sophie and i were texting a little Dude, bit it about happens this, but this... so fucking much in this book as soon as lucy dies arthur and mina are like i pledge myself as your sister and he's like oh and won't you you know and will you let me be your brother and there's like you know all of this like good feeling yeah yeah bullshit right where they have this companionship now that they decided they have in an instant literally doesn't build up over time it's like ooh, we both got scared now we're besties um but it works yeah because they're it, and that's what i think the that. oaths like the binding agreements and so i said yeah like when there is this level of if you survive something right i think there's a name for this i don't know my psychology terms that well but there's a name for that right when like somebody saves you or you experience a traumatic event with Trauma somebody bonding there is a connection right like there is like you are immediately connected because you just went through something like whether you're total strangers on a train or something, right? Like, and you just go through some traumatic thing. I don't know what it is, whatever it is. You, you're suddenly bonded in this way, right. but this goes a little bit further in terms of we have the vocalized pledges. Like there's a scene and this is later in the novel when they realize they have to chase Dracula cause they have him on the run and like they all kind of gather around Mina and they figure out, oh, she's being hypnotized by Dracula. She's being, you know, sucked dry by him type of thing. And, and she's sucking him dry and everybody's sucking oh, each other yeah. and, and <laughs> very oh, sexy. Yeah. And then they Everyone's all kind of. Everyone's so appealing. Everyone's looking at each other very appealingly. Sucking and fucking and sucking and fucking. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Potter. <laughs> But uh, they do. Yeah, have there's no the, there's no Stephen King style um, gangbang that's going to go down here. Yeah. <laughs> as we've discussed <laughs> over talking about that yesterday. Yeah. Stephen yeah. King's uh, uh, like 12 year old uh, gangbang in the sewers. Yeah, but, nothing uh, wrong with that. You know, <laughs> just yeah. a 12 year old gangbang in the sewers. That's normal. Normal but, part of uh, growing up. This idea of oaths and there's this big scene where they all gather around Mina when they know she's a vampire and they all kind of one by one pledge not just like they like that they're like loyal to her they're gonna help her and they're this. gonna put their dicks in her yeah. <laughs> they pledge Harry their swords Potter putting his penis in her but uh that's a whole other world we can do a whole episode on Harry Potter fan fiction if you want oh uh, the banging I've never oh, read yeah. Harry Potter fan fiction but i imagine it's just like all other fan fiction which is terrible just different characters banging each other yeah yeah just like it's all fucking, it is. yeah um but they all like basically like pledge their life that they're, they're willing to see this through to the end and there is something compelling in that and this kind of what is it about oaths or like commitments in stories that work so well well they have to be committed Right? Or else if it gets too hard, they're all going to be like, whoa, oh, shucks. Oh, gee whiz. Didn't work out. Yeah. Although it might be more exciting if one of them, like, was like, oh, fuck this, I'm out of here, and, like, ran off. I honestly think that would have made for a more exciting story. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it's sort of like we need to have this, like, central crew. Like, they don't really become a team until 
halfway through the book or more, right? Where they start doing things for each other. They start really working together. They start, Mina starts typing up all of John Seward's diaries that he has entered in his phonograph. It's when Which I also want to come back admit, to. Yeah. There's a lot about, um, like, the phonograph and shorthand. And, like, everyone, especially Mina, is really fascinated with how easy we can make note-taking. The, the available technologies of note-taking. Like, she routinely keeps mentioning it later on when they're chasing uh, Dracula by boat. Um she's like all hype about the traveling typewriter like there's all this shit um technology making it easier yeah yeah there was a big emphasis on that as well uh did that do anything for you i mean i guess it did make sense in terms of like yeah i mean in terms of the first of all the way that the story is presented to us right it's all right. It's all letter writing, pretty much, or diary writing, right. or telegrams. Um, and they're all avid note takers, right? We have like two doctors. We have John Jonathan Harker who keeps a diary. Mina who keeps a diary because I don't know. I guess her husband does, and somehow now she's compelled to do it too. Um, is really like proud of herself for being able to write in shorthand, and then becomes really impressed by. Seward's phonograph. Yeah, I really don't know shorthand as much because we don't really use it anymore, but I know we do still use um, shorthand style. It's almost like a different language, yeah, where um use it in, like, legal stenographers now. They're, like, the only people that still do it. Yeah. Because we have computers, so you can type faster than you could ever write with a pen and paper type thing. Yeah, I mean, we also just typing. have, like, voice recognition, right? Voice yeah, recorders like AI, now and all that. that. Yeah. Or, like, shit that would just go audio to text for you. So you wouldn't even have to listen to something to type it up. Yeah. So there's only, like, a few people. But that was something they used to teach all women, right? Like, that if you went to, like, a finishing school, um, you know, yeah, that's what it is. And I don't know if we mentioned this, but, like, there is also the added... Like, we know that after Harker initially goes to see Dracula in those first chapters, when he returns, he, like, he doesn't return for some time because he's ill. Like, at the end of his chapters, I was surprised to learn that he was not dead. Um, Harker? So he, like, yeah, like, he becomes really ill and stays at some hospital some foreign hospital before coming home. Oh, right, right. Yeah, that's that's way into the... Because that's in the very beginning, or at least like the first yeah, section that was in the very journal ends. Yeah, so they know it's like... Because we introduced Mina, where like Mina gets a letter from a foreign hospital where Harker just appeared because we, last we saw him, he was desperately trying to escape from Dracula's castle, and then he just appears. They think he's crazy, he's in a hospital, he's ill, blah, blah, blah. So probably yeah. had his blood drained or something like that. Um, so we know that the, like they know that they're going into danger and they also have all of his journals. So they read his journals and they're like, oh, shit. And then we spend the next fucking I don't know how many chapters, dude. It feels like forever well, that they're chasing Dracula. 
Yeah, well, that's like the whole thing, right? They're going to get this, <clears throat> the villain, right? They have to all swear this oath. But, like, still staying on, like, the recording, the writing type thing. I mean, phonograph was brand new, right? This was the end of the 19th century when Edison first invented it. And they describe it in the book, and it's the old-style phonograph. It's not like a record player like we were accustomed to. This is still very early wax cylinders yeah. that would melt if they got too hot. Yeah, you have to crank right. it. Uh, not very good quality recordings. You, They were pressing the sound into the wax disc, but it was not what we could, like how we press records today or even in the 70s and 60s and yeah. 50s. But... Um, yeah, there's that. Anybody that's interested in that, it's a very interesting history on like the phonograph and the kind of evolution of like sound recording, which all happened really at the end of the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. I like a lot of like this, this is some nerdy shit, but I like a lot of like old blues records, and I'm saying like old blues, like yeah, like 1920s and shit. Like, um, uh, uh, oh god, what's his name? I didn't want to say it's not Charlie Parker. Charlie Patton. Charlie Patton's one of my mm. favorites. He's one of the kind of big Delta Blues godfathers. Uh, you know, his recordings are so hard to listen to now because they were recorded on a shitty phonograph. You know, one track, he was basically playing live and they're recording him. So it's terrible quality. It cracks. Like, the voice isn't regulated. The high and low levels all crackle when they get too high or too low. But, uh, you know, it was the only way to preserve a lot of all that music yeah. and all that kind of well, stuff happening back then. But I Well, I think a more interesting thing is, like, uh, everyone's compelled to, you know, and it's not just the doctors, right? Everyone's compelled to, like, keep note of what they see, um, keep some record of what they see. And they, like, you know, there there's talk of, like, empirical minds, right? And, like, you know, you have to, now that we've all seen it, we believe it. And keeping all these records of what they have seen um, just sort of makes it more compelling, I think. Yeah. Or interesting that is... they are so compelled. But, like, it's also at a moment where it's like, yeah, that was the thing. Well, that's the thing, too. So, like, we this reason is this oath these binding agreements and like what it does is yeah it compels characters to act when they would rather not and we see this when van helsing is um uh, consecrating the graves of of dracula and and the the women that dracula keeps around so like you know he's like doesn't want to do it he's terrified and then horrified at what he has to do but he keeps doing it anyway because he's sworn this oath to protect mina and everybody else and i guess you could argue his himself too right because it's quite a bit of danger if you don't follow through on this like he's going to die like right they're going to kill him um so there is this level of like oaths give us a reason or give the characters a reason give us a plot point in the story to justify actions that we would be like, why would anybody do this? Why would you risk your life in that regard? And there's just something about swearing. I don't know. Like swear, like this is, Sophie and I talked about this a little bit where we kind of swear on Bibles, right? We take oaths before we testify things. We still do. You swear on the constitution or something. If uh, I teach in a state where they make me take an oath to the constitution of the state, uh, when I work, cause I'm technically a state employee, right? 
I don't know if it's a red state thing or what, but yeah, there was like Gotta a paper be. I had to sign. I had to pl- basically just say pledge an oath to the con- to uphold the constitution of the state of Nevada. It's essentially, I think all state workers have to do it. So it's like something like that. Uh, I never had to do that in Louisiana or Maryland, but yeah, I don't know. There's just things like that where it just it creates this kind of binding where it's almost like we put them into law, right? Like these O's are part of the law now. And it's like, do you swear you're telling the truth? So hope you God, right? It's like, I don't know. Maybe it's like a, like a deferring to a higher power or like a. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of that in this book, right? Like, well, if we can believe in this, you know, I mean, there's so much reference to God, dude. Like Mina and Jonathan Harker in particular are especially religious. It would seem. Well, it's Um, the Victorian age. Yeah. Yeah. And that's pretty well established pretty early on. Um, so they're also trying to do right by God. That's also a lot of this. Is that, you know, the power of Christ compels them. Yeah, and you think of, like, the um, horror that came out all around that time. It was very, because it was, like, a supernatural power. The only other supernatural power you could refer to would be, yeah, like, the myths, traditions, yeah. legends of what they call God and mostly the Christian religion. Um, but everyone has their myths about it, so... That makes sense from a storytelling perspective, and you see all this horror, right? Like crosses, um, holy water, uh, this one spirit. Well, yeah, but garlic. <laughs> garlic just, isn't exactly holy. Uh, uh, I wonder what that comes stuff. from. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you go by garlic, like the way people use garlic, like all. Of, I mean, dude, if you look at some of these home, like homeopathy, like. Uh, facebook groups and shit dude some of these like hippie people are just like thinking that onions and garlic like break fevers and shit if you like put them in the bath like <laughs> with you or, or so yeah i don't know i guess because it's just so pungent and it does clear your sinuses if you were to like bite into a whole clove of garlic or something like you could clear out congestion or i don't know if it was used in like medicine probably right it's still used in medicine right garlic things where you say take us garlic <laughs> supplement to lower your cholesterol i don't know i mean it, i guess it's just the traditional use of this kind of very flavorful uh sometimes almost too much flavor when you're just like biting into garlic right it's like overwhelms everything yeah. you can smell it on people when they've eaten too much garlic right and they're just like sweating out garlic it's like everything's tinged with garlic love, like uh, you smell I it i love garlic so much yeah i mean me too it's delicious but it's great. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, but so there is this, like, so, okay, this big spirit is going to fight this other evil spirit. So it is within the religious context of, like, storytelling. Oh, well, yeah. Right? I mean, they're going around. So the big thing, right? They need to consecrate the ground that he sleeps on, right? So when Dracula is like, I'm going to move to London, he has to have all of his, you know, coffins filled with earth. Uh, delivered. The dirt he was buried in, yeah. Yeah. Um, and he has, like, a bunch of coffins. Uh, and he's the way had that hundreds they're going of years to, to prepare. Deal with this is they're going to place um, a wafer in the coffin. 
what uh, they refer to in the Christian religion as the Eucharist, right? So the, the symbolic body of Christ, the, uh, the wafer that the priest blesses and says, this is the body of Christ, and then people eat it symbolically, right? So that flavor. is enough. Yeah, it's usually, usually flavorless. Yeah, yeah, it's like literally like air. Yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, you could just munch on them. If you had like a bag of like the little wafers they make for churches. Uh, I've been to whenever there's like a lot of people, uh, like a like an impromptu mass or like a graduation mass or something. When I was younger and had to go to them, they were like, if they didn't have enough wafers, they would just like tear up loaves of bread, and just like have them be like blessed in the ceremony and pass those out. So I guess what they used to do before there was like a wafer factory that like made them with a little cross imprinted. Yeah. All that stuff, but yeah. But yeah, they need to do that. And they know that he has several boxes. Dracula knows that the team is on to them. So he's going to flee. But they can only find so many of his boxes. So he takes his last box with him. His last coffin. Um, Well, they determine, and this is one of the details they determine in terms of like detective, the whole team coming together, right? They they all have these missions that they have to complete because there are boxes all over the country in England because he was moving there. They discover he has almost 50 boxes, right, that are moved to various locations. They have to hunt them down through various solicitors, right? This is where they use that one guy's money, Arthur's money, to like help them track this and like pay off like, you know, customs agents at shipping harbors and stuff. Uh, to find out where these boxes went and like then they have to destroy them right so they burn them they destroy them all that kind of stuff while just to like make sure kind of like so he keeps bringing in the harry potter stuff but yeah like essentially like the voldemort voldemort horcruxes right like they have to just yeah. dis- destroy the these things so you can't re- reincarnate um so that he has but, nowhere to go yeah and <clears throat> you know i mean that's fun I was thrilled. Like I said, I read this in like four days. Like I was kind of like bored by that part. I was yeah. like, okay, let's move forward. I want some real Dracula uh, action, right? Cause, I mean, at this point, we haven't seen Dracula in so many fucking chapters. Right? Like, we haven't seen him since like chapter four or some shit. We're on chapter like, you know, 24 at this point. Somewhere there. We haven't like seen him or his correspondences, but we have... We like hear Dracula about is still him. the thing driving everybody else. So uh, we have a minor driving the plot. You know, encounter with him when we hear the story about the wolf at the zoo, right? Uh, oh, the wolves. We didn't even talk about the wolves, dude. Yeah, so he has a thing the for gypsies. The gypsies. Oh, yeah, the gypsies. There's some... Uh, children of the night. What music yeah. they make. I'm going to talk about that line in my uh, subscriber-only uh, movie reviews, listeners. So uh, keep that in mind. Subscribe so you can hear it. Patreon.com slash heavyboard. Uh, uh, we're getting there anyway, but I was going to ask, like, as we move towards the end, what do we think of the ending? What uh, do we think like, as we got there? I did not love the ending. I felt disappointed by the ending. It felt very like I can see how there's like one exciting scene and there like I can see how maybe visually it would be more exciting, 
but there is no final encounter. Like, there's no real... Like, what's the other than... Okay. Uh, what happens right before the very end? Like, what's their last real encounter with any vampire? Um, is the it last... when they... Go it's... So, by the ending is when they're separated into three groups, right? So, Harker right. and... Um... And uh, Quincy, is it? Or no? I well, anyway, think so. Like the, or so Seward. Is it Seward three, and Quincy? Yeah. And three, <laughs> three, three groups three of, of two. Yeah. And then Mina and Van Helsing have the last encounter with what you would call the female vampires, right? Like um, uh, yeah, Van so Helsing. Yeah, like the only real vampire encounter yeah. we get at the ending, right? They go It's like the third to, to last house? chapter. Yeah, they're at Dracula's castle, and so they're in the woods, yeah. right, where, like, you, the woods are mysterious. Not a lot of people venture into them because they're dangerous, right? Everybody that ventures into them locally doesn't come back because it's Dracula's property, and you'll either get bitten, eaten by the wolves or the female vampires or Dracula himself will, like, kill you, right? So that's why the woods are dangerous. Van Helsing comes up with this clever idea of grinding, like, the Eucharist or what they would call, right, the, the, the blessed cracker or wafer or bread, right, the kind of body of Christ symbolically. They grind that and then put it into, like, a powder and then, like, put it around you in, like, a circle. They can't cross the threshold, right? So he, like, uses that to avoid getting um, attacked by the female vampires. But the very end, like, that last chapter is, like, the gypsies are moving Dracula's coffin, up to his castle from the river right and it's during the day so dracula's kind of helpless and this is what they all planned for and then like as they're well, approaching it, right like yeah he's have, in it he it's like the last box it's his only just, coffin. yeah because van helsing went to the house during the day and destroyed the the women's boxes and um put a eucharist in dracula's box so that he couldn't go back into the one in the actual castle but so the only one left is the one that the gypsies are moving up the hill. And that's when they all three kind of finally converge and kind of pounce. And they have to fight with the gypsies who are ordered and paid off, right, to defend this box defend at all costs. So Quincy Morris gets stabbed as they're trying to get to the box in this, like, you know, rickety kind of mountain wagon pass. And... uh yeah, then they eventually rip the lid off of and kill and kill him once they uh fight their way through the gypsies. Yeah, they pry it open and yeah. They just stab him. And that's that. And I didn't mind the and ending. I thought it was a little bit cheap that only Quincy Morris was the one who got stabbed and killed. I thought more people should be injured and or killed when they're trying to do this. But Yeah, uh, I wanted more I wanted I mean, I get it. They did it the smart way. So, like, they just, you know, open his box and kill him. But, like, I feel like there was no excitement in it, really. Like, there's a little bit of that, like, struggle that happens between the two groups. But, yeah, I felt like for so many chapters of No Dracula, there was very little payoff by the end. Yeah, I mean, I, and I don't think it. that's something that would fly. Like, you know, I don't think that's the way you would write it today. I think maybe because sure. the story of Dracula isn't about Dracula, really. It's about, like, this group. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, like, this mysterious vampire character, right? It's not really, like, about the vampires. 
Yeah, I mean, I flew through it. Um, the ending was not the best, but I didn't mind the ending. I thought it was fine, not great. But I'd find like most endings in horror. I was horror. pissed that this was the final battle. I was hor- like, I was holding out for it. You uh, know? Did, yeah. Um, I was like, oh my God, we've been on this ship. We've been just like in hotels or like, you know, in a carriage, like going, you know, just get like following Dracula and trying to figure it out. Oh, like for chapter after chapter. Well, the ticking clock something is. Something happens. Like the ticking clock is they have to reach Dracula before he gets to his castle because otherwise he gets his castle. There's nothing they can do once he's in there and like can protect it with the wolves and all this other stuff. Like it's uh that's the ticking clock. That's why they have to like all three go and not be able to communicate with each other. Just have to trust that they're going to do what they I said. Feel like they I, would. I have so I've suspended so much disbelief at this point though, that it's just like, why not have the harder battle? What would you say? But suggest? I guess, you know, they planned it so carefully, right? Like, you know, I would just, like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I wanted to get back to the castle again. I wanted a wolf attack. I wanted more of a struggle. Um, I guess there was. I guess some. it was just, it felt like it was just over so quickly for something that we were waiting so long to happen, right? This confrontation. And it's not really a confrontation. It's more of just, you know, a stabbing. <laughs> stabbing and beheading. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't mind it. I liked the novel. I didn't, I was, I had never read it before and I was, I'm glad I did because otherwise I would have just taken everybody else's word for it as to what the story is. And you kind of, it's one of those stories where you do know a lot of the details because it's just so ingrained in our culture um, and there's been so many movies made and all that kind of stuff, right? People dressing up as Dracula for Halloween for the last 120 years, all that kind of stuff. Uh, which I'll get into, again, listeners, in the Patreon only, uh, where I go into some of these movies. In terms of the look of Dracula, how that came about, the directors that kind of created the look that we now associate with it. The visual kind of pop culture elements, but... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think endings to a lot of horror stories are not great. Yeah. But I, like I said, I read it in four days and I, I kind of really enjoyed it way more than I thought I would enjoy it. Because it was kind of like a pure pulp oh, kind yeah, of thriller. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. It, it was fun. It, I did get bored at parts, though. And I did want more payoff at the end. But yeah, that's just me. You want Dracula to win? Um, not necessarily, but I wanted more struggle. I mean, not that, you know, there wasn't any, but I guess that's the other danger, right? Like we didn't, we also didn't get the battle from every perspective, right? It's like the last thing that happens. We get the battle from one perspective. Yeah, well, we get it through Mina, and Mina's watching from up above in her little circle of ground-up Eucharist. So it's like she's watching up there, and uh, she sees, like, the groups of the men, like, kind of converging from the different directions, which is what they planned on doing, right? They had to kind of approach from different directions, different ways of traveling to ensure that each way was covered the way Dracula would get back to his castle. 
so yeah and then she sees the convergence and like that little gorge she's like above them watching so you get it off yeah so it that's all just to say like it ends really quickly we don't hear from the people that are actually doing the killing we just see mina seeing everything well the people actually doing the killing we don't really get their diaries or journals or anything the entire time right that's what i'm saying yeah could like, have killed so it, more characters. it is over really quickly. Like we don't get that backtracking. We don't get any like filling in. Um, I think Van Helsing maybe could have been killed if we wanted to uh, do that, or at the very least gravely injured. Something, something's got to happen. Someone's got to like lose a hand or something. But yeah, I mean, again, ending I thought was a little boring, but it, it was the right mood the right tone you know for an October read while you're waiting for all of those shitty Netflix movies to come out become available Uh, yeah did you have anything else no that was it yeah buy yourself a copy it's linked in the description read it so that you don't just uh, take people's word for it read it and say what you think not just so we've done a couple books like uh, this so far where there's just like, there's the legend around it, there's the popularity around it, and then there's the actual book itself. This is one, yeah, where I wasn't disappointed by it, but yeah, I was and surprised, it, it actually. pretty quickly, you know, um, for a 300-page book, it reads pretty quickly, and um, there were parts that, like, I got a little hung up on just because, like, when... Uh, there are characters that are maybe written in um, a dialect that can be hard to understand. The right, Dutch. so there were certain phrases. Yeah, I mean, like, there were just certain phrasings I didn't fully grab onto. But um, those parts were pretty minimal. It was usually, like, getting a story from an outsider who had, like, a heavy... Um, Dutch accent. <clears throat> I wouldn't even say it was about like whether it was Dutch or anything, right? Like Van Helsing has an accent too. So we don't have. Well, um, he's the one that's Dutch. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, there are just words missing, right? For his, but his is fairly easy to read. I would say, I mean, there's still some, like, you know, if you struggle at all, you might have some struggle there, but uh, yeah, no, like with the the zookeeper guy or the guy that they're interviewing for the zoo, that kind of guy who's like talking oh, in a the, lot of uh, slang. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the hackney, the hackney British. Hey, yeah, I got no like, over there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's when I hey, guess fucking hard. Yeah, like the I'm kind just of like, like what the fuck is this word? Yeah. Like even if I like do it in my head or try to do it out loud, I'm like, yeah, I can't figure this shit out. But again, and if you think this really is minimal. this is where the realism. Uh, trend was happening too right in literary circles you were seeing a lot of the accents the um, slang the uh, the way different characters from different parts of not just the world but different parts of the city right or different parts of the rural urban landscape how they spoke Uh, and the writers at this time were starting to become more obsessed with capturing that like different vernaculars different ways of speaking the kind of omissions of certain sounds and then like yeah when he's talking with some of the locals in london and around uh england right like they have the kind of like 
not prim and proper speech like all the doctors and everybody else was speaking and like lawyers and stuff and like the prim and proper women like Mina and Lucy how they were speaking it was like you know like we don't stay in castles uh <laughs> like this is how we talk and that's a that yeah this was just the time where that was happening but yeah i will say some of my german did help me read some of the fucking dutch <laughs> that van helsing breaks into here and there but obviously they're different but they are pretty closely related yeah. that shit didn't help me at all yeah I know very little German listeners, but the little bit that I did did help me kind of be oh, he's saying my God there. Like, <laughs> mein Gott. Yeah. It's just like, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's why if you, just, if you hear it out loud, you don't question what it is, right? It's just like it yeah. sounds close enough. That's the great thing about German. It's pretty close to English. Um uh yeah structurally is really what makes it a little well, bit like, easier well it's like basically you know it's the parent of english essentially yeah the and the parent language. of dutch the parent of yeah, yeah. The northern parts of europe there it was like yeah the only reason i find german easier is because structurally it's the same as english right so every other language i learn it's backwards and like compared and to like the english beer. And water is wasser. Wasser, <laughs> yeah. Beer und wine. Wasser. Oh, yeah, all the W's or V's. Wasser, I forget yeah. that sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but just because, like, it's not backwards, you're not, you don't have to say, like, the brother of Maria. You just say Maria's brother, yeah, like yeah, you would in yeah. English. So it's not, it's like different than like the other languages that I'm half-ass learning, but yeah. Helped a little bit, but yeah, that's it. That's all I got, dude. Yeah, it's good shit. Good for a Halloween read. Yeah, let us know what you Check think, listeners. I probably will not do what Andy did and re or watch the, you know, silent film, because that just sounds like a terrible time to me. <laughs> It sounds like a really garbage evening. Yeah, as I mentioned, um, listeners. But if silent film compels you, please, by all means. Uh, I Yeah, as I mentioned. You've only watched the movies up through the 70s, and that all sounds terrible to me. Uh, so. I've... I don't know why I decided to do this, but I decided to do this. And yeah, Sophie wasn't game for it. So I was just like, well, so fucking many of them. Fuck it. I'll just... I'm like game for it, but I'm not going to watch all of this. So I'm just going to do this... Uh, I don't know why I wanted to do this, but I basically gave myself this project. I'm watching nine Dracula movies. I've watched the first four. I'm going to watch the fifth one tonight. Um, and I'm probably going to release this maybe a week after we release this episode. Um, for like a Halloween thing, I'm just, I'm going, there's so many Dracula movies. I've narrowed it down to just the nine that specifically try to uh, make the novel into a, uh, a movie so i'm doing just specifically the novel adaptations so we've have you know 120 years of movies basically 100 years of movies that have been making this novel so i'm going to go into a nine all nine of those and uh do a little are there any really recent ones the most recent one that actually follows the novel or tries to is uh coppola's 1992 bram stoker's dracula yeah which I'm watching last. I'm watching them all in order. Yeah. So I'm like halfway and I'll 
I'm writing up my monologues on it and then I'll have that out uh, probably a week after this for only subscribers. So if you want to hear that, subscribe at patreon.com slash heavy board. But yeah, a little treat for listeners. Uh, I'll get that done at some point and put that out. But if you're interested in that type of shit, but that's it. Anything else on this? All right. Reminder to listeners, we're still looking for workshop horror stories. If you have a story about a horrific workshop experience, send that to us at heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. We also have subscription plans. Uh, for just a few dollars a month, you can receive full access to our entire catalog, uh, bonus episodes, interviews, uh, all the things we want to get going on the podcast here. Uh, for subscribers only, subscribe to that at patreon.com slash heavyboard. Uh, if you don't want to do that, you can't afford it. There are other ways to support us. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Leave us a five-star review on Apple or any of the other podcast platforms. And you can subscribe to our YouTube channels, like, share, uh, tell your friends and family about it. Write into us at heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. All those things help support the podcast, so that would help us out. And next week we are doing, uh, where's my list? Carl Phillips, The Coin of the Realm. We're going to discuss a few of the essays in that collection of craft essays on poetry. So get yourself a copy. We'll go into that. And this has been Heavy Board. See ya. See ya. I am heavy, heavy, heavy board. Sweats and the day sweats, pal. Pal, I do.